Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There's a psychological approach to the study of practice, you know, Anders Ericsson is sort of the doyen of that, where he studied chess players and violinists and talked about deliberative practice. It was his work that was kind of simplified by Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hour rule. So there's that whole side of things, which is, you know, what is deliberative practice? What's the best way to practice? What happens during practice? What is the difference between a novice and an expert? So there's that whole field, right? And then... There's the neuroscience side, which you could argue is, well, what's the neural basis of that? And I have to tell you that the answer is we don't really know. We, we don't know why, from a neural standpoint, uh, you need to practice. I mean, Hi, my name is Pete McCall, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of the All About Fitness podcast. That voice you just heard is the guest for this episode, and quite possibly one of the smartest people I've interviewed for the podcast, Dr. John Krakauer. And Dr. Krakauer is a professor of neurology and neuroscience at the Center of Study of Motor Learning and Brain Repair. Now think about that for a second. So Dr. Hopkins is a professor of neuroscience in a center for motor learning. They study motor learning and brain repair at Johns Hopkins. Now, I found out about Dr. Krakauer a few years ago, and this is a rerun. I, re I recorded this originally in spring of 2019, and I first found out about Dr. Krakauer a few years ago when a company reached out to me. The company's name is Halo, and Halo makes a headphone that they claim will help you with motor learning, help stimulate motor learning in the body. Well, digging into that a little bit, I realized that there really is such a thing, that that, that something called TCM, or tran it's it's transcranial, it's transcranial, it's a TS, transcranial stimulation, TSM, transcranial stimulation or TS, transcranial stimulation. Well, that's what we talk about today with Dr. Krakauer. Dr. Krakauer is one of these leading researchers in motor control and how the body learns how to move. And what this company, what Halo was talking about was using a, a current, a low amperage current into the brain to stimulate motor learning. And that is Dr. Krakauer's area specialty. So in this episode of All About Fitness, I speak with Dr. Krakauer about motor learning and how we learn how to move better. Because that's what exercise is. Exercise at its base, at its core foundation, exercise is movement. If you have very specific goals related to exercise, if there is something that you're working towards, you have to first learn how to move better. And I mean that if you were a Division I athlete getting ready to make that transition from college to the pros, 
and you go to a place like Exos, and I interviewed Roy Holmes, who leads the Exos Draft Academy. Exos prepares young men to transition from college to professional sports leagues, and one of the first things they do at Exos is teach the athletes how to move better. Well, this conversation today, we speak with Dr. Krakauer about the neuroscience behind movement, and this is fascinating. So let's get into it. Now, to start off, uh, to start off, John, I want to ask you a question. I just read the performance cortex with Zach Schoenbrunn, and in it, you really highlight that good athletes should be considered um, for their intellectual skill, or you relate athleticism to intellect. Can you discuss that a little bit and what that means? Uh, yes. I mean, I, I think it goes back to actually a New York Times uh, piece I wrote with a philosopher friend of mine called Jason Stanley that was titled, Is the Dumb Jock Really a Nerd? And we were referring to something that goes back all the way, you could argue, to Aristotle, where there's this belief that working with your hands versus working with your mind are different things, you know, episteme versus techne. Uh, and I think we live with that still today, even though we culturally are obsessed with physical skill. I mean, a billion people watch the World Cup final. Uh, we nevertheless seem to hold cognitive abilities in higher regard. And somehow sports fell on the physical side of that divide, whereas mathematics and chess fell on the other side. Um, and all I'm trying to say is that that's false. Uh, that every cognitive activity we engage in from maths to French to cooking to sport are a combination um, of procedural and declarative cognitive and automatic processes. Um, and we've made a kind of category error if we think that neuroscience has given some kind of credence to the idea that there's no intelligence involved when you're playing sports. And that's really what that's all about. Well, I think that's a pretty, but I think that's a pretty correct term because when you look at any athlete of a high level, most of them demonstrate a pretty high intellect, especially once they operate in a professional regards for a number of years. Has that been your experience um, as you've been researching the field? Well, you have to I, again, um, IQ and intellect, if that's what you really mean, uh, uh, are about general fluid intelligence and. One of the things that happens is that you, as you practice something, you get so good at it, you don't have to sort of think it through on one level. So, for example, it, for grandmaster chess players, one, there's no correlation between their IQ and what their grandmaster status is. Hmm. Uh, so one has to be careful. So I wouldn't say that, in, that the best athletes know more than the best chess players have the highest IQ. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is there's as much thinking content in a sport as there is in any other thing that seems less physical. Do you see the difference? I'm not saying that the, the athletes, the best athletes have the highest IQs. What I'm saying is that athletes use their IQ, whatever it is, just as much as people use their IQ in any other area of human endeavor. But just in a different application. Right. I mean, yeah. when... Roger Federer is playing tennis. He's thinking all the time, right? He's not just switching off his brain and going onto the court. And that's and no more than a mathematician at the blackboard has switched off their brain. <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be an interesting thing to see. Now, how did you get study? How did you get interested in studying neuroscience? What what led you down this field? 
Well, I think, you know, I was as an undergrad, I did neurobiology as a major and got very interested in in the nervous system. I was always interested in becoming a doctor and I was interested in neurology. Um, so it just seemed like, you know, diseases in the nervous system fit very well the study of neuroscience. And so they sort of evolved in parallel. And then I realized I could do both in a way. And I was lucky in that regard. And so, you know, I also I did research and worked in a lab and I was a resident, uh, a, clinic, a clinician, and, and they've cross-pollinated ever since, I think. And then I wanted to kind of t- mention something here, kind of ask you a question on this, because in reading some of your work and, and reading other other areas around neuroscience, how is muscle memory? Because a lot of people, I think, hear the term muscle memory and can kind of relate to that. But how is, this, how is that a misnomer? And what really is taking place when we kind of automate or learn a movement pattern? Yeah, I think muscle memory has just been this term that has been applied to when you seem to be able to sort of effortlessly do something without thinking about it anymore. In other words, you can ride a bike and you can talk on your headphones or you can be looking around you while you cycle. And it wasn't that way when you started, where you had to sort of concentrate solely on learning how to ride a bike. And so people will then say, ah, everyone now has a muscle memory for bike riding, right? And, you know, you can not ride a bike for years and hop on a bike and you, you, you haven't forgotten how to do it. That's the memory part of it. So that's where it comes from. It's this idea that it's no longer in your brain because you don't have to think about it. It's migrated out to your muscles and just happens as soon as you encounter the bike, for example. Uh, now, of course, that's nonsense. Uh, it's not in your muscles. It's in your brain along with all your other memories. Um, uh, but it is true that with practice, there's things that you automatize. They become less effortful. They can be done while you do something else. And so there's always been this interest in how you can, through practice, go from something that is effortful and requires concentration to being able to do it effortlessly and automatically. I mean, it can almost happen in the background. Uh, and that's what people mean by muscle memory. But really, it's just another form of uh, procedural memory in your brain. And see, a lot of what, in my audience is the general consumer, but in my work, what I try to do is educate personal trainers. And a lot of what we do in our field is we try to teach trainers how to teach their clients movement patterns so that the movement becomes an automatic reflex and the the client doesn't need to think about it to use the hips or to to do a movement correctly. What's involved, if if you can kind of walk us through a little bit of like what's involved in developing an end grammar or developing kind of storing a motor pattern how much practice or how much you know refinement is involved in that yeah i mean that's a really great question and it's something that um our lab is actively pursuing and you know adrian haith who was a postdoc with me and is now co-director of bland lab is particularly interested in this and has a research program that he's launched sort of trying to go after what practice is um you know let me just answer that you know the, the problem is is that there are there's a psychological approach to the study of practice. You know, Anders Ericsson is sort of the doyen of that, where he studied chess players and violinists and talked about deliberative practice. It was his work that was kind of simplified by Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000-hour rule. So there's that whole side of things, which is, you know, what is deliberative practice? What's the best way to practice? What happens during practice? What is the difference between a novice and an expert? So there's that whole field, right? And then... There's the neuroscience side, which you could argue is, well, what's the neural basis of that? And I have to tell you that 
The answer is we don't really know. We, we don't know why, from a neural standpoint, uh, you need to practice. I mean, the closest we can come to it, in a way, is to borrow a little bit from what's been happening in the artificial intelligence world, you know, where, you know, DeepMind was able to finally beat, uh, with a computer, the world champion at Go. And the way that these deep nets have become so good is that they basically train on thousands and thousands and thousands of exemplars, right? So they just have an enormous amount of input. Now, you could say, maybe literally or only by analogy, that you need an enormous amount of input, i.e. practice, to train up these deep neural nets. Um, And maybe you should think of the cortex as a form of deep neural net, which instead of being able to dump in short periods of time, huge numbers of examples in like you can with a deep mind, you need to simply do all that dumping in of data over time. And it takes years to accumulate all that data. And that's what's needed to train up the neural networks in your brain. Um, but we don't really study years and years of practice in the lab. I mean, think about it, right? How would you get a grant where you said, I want to study 20, 30 animals or humans practicing something for a decade, you'd never get funded, right? So, and on top of that, it's not clear that what we consider skills that humans acquire over time, there's any equivalent in the animal kingdom, even in monkeys. So once you combine the questionable possibility of skills that are acquired over that time period at all in the animal kingdom, plus the sheer practical difficulties of ever doing such a study you now can understand why it is that we have no idea what the brain is doing to acquire expertise over time what we study in the lab is one hour one week of learning right and we don't know why the real world skills take years not weeks or hours um so i hate to be a downer but uh we just don't know what the neural basis of practice is, which is why in his book, Peak, that Adam Erickson wrote, it's a whole book on expertise and practice, and there's no neuron in sight. You know, it's funny, that John, I don't think you need to be apologetic about that, because just to let you know, and for listeners, anytime I speak with someone who's a PhD in exercise physiology, they are very hesitant to give me a definitive answer because they don't know. Like if I ask them like a question about what's the best way to lose weight, they will say, we don't know, you know, we can give you different cases of it. And so I think for listeners, it's important to understand that the more somebody studies a certain field, the less definitive they are about answering that. And I think you're, you're just proving kind of my hypothesis on that absolutely correct. And that you kind of have an idea, but you, you still, we don't know for sure. Now, can we say this is practicing movement is, is one thing about practice, figuring out the brain figures out ways not to do something. Like you clean up ways to not do a certain movement or a certain pattern? Yes. I mean, there are certain things that we do that either evolution optimized and we're sort of hardwired to be optimal or optimal enough, or there are some things that we do. For example, we all, when we reach for a cup of coffee, tend to make a straight movement towards the cup of coffee, right? And for the longest time, people have wanted to know, why, why do we reach in a straight line? There are actually potentially energetically less costly ways to do it with some curvature. Um, so there are 
things that we all do that are probably close to optimal. Um, but at the same time, as soon as you see people in the gym lifting weights, doing push-ups, you can see all sorts of suboptimal bad habits that people use. You go to a park at the weekend and there are people hitting terrible backhands, right? So there, we seem to, there, there seem to be so many degrees of freedom available when your body interacts with a task that the chances of the mapping between your body and the task being optimal, once you get away from the things you were born with, um, diminishes. And that's why we need coaches and therapists, because you need people to instruct you where the right part of the parameter space is. Um, so, and I see that all the time. I have a, a squash trainer and I have a gym trainer and I am terrible. If I don't have them there, I'll find every potential cheat possible. Um, and by the way, that that's another thing is that when someone's cheating in the gym and doing it badly, as far as they're concerned, when it comes to feeling tired and effort, they've done the optimal thing. That cheating is the right thing to do if you want to get off the hook, right? You want to be not tired. No, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not. Way, go ahead. Sorry. So whereas what the trainer says to you is, you know, you might think that's the right way to do it because it feels less effortful. But in the long term, you're not going to benefit. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And that's a lot of what, you know, sometimes cheating can be energy expensive. So people feel like they've done more work. And I was just going to ask you, John, about the role of feedback, because that is, you're absolutely right. That is what, and I was going to ask whether you're a football player, and I mean the international football, um, or, you know, what, what sport you played, and you you answered that with squash. But what what is the role of feedback in terms of improving movement? And, and what would be the most effective way? You mentioned a coach or you mentioned a trainer, but for somebody trying to get better at like a golf swing or a, or a tennis swing, mm -hmm. what would be a good form of feedback that could um, like help like kind of speed up their, their performance development? Well, you know, again, <laughs> people don't really know, right? I mean, because let me, let's take feedback for a golf swing. You can either have somebody just go, hey, that was good, that was bad, right? So you get binary kind of feedback and you just explore the space based on that. Or you can have somebody do it and then you imitate them, right? Which is a almost a unique human capacity to imitate like that. Um, or you can have them play back what they did and they can watch themselves do it so they get a more fine-grained form of feedback. Um, so, or they can get, they can win or lose, and is that a kind of feedback? So in other words, the problem with feedback is there are so many forms you can give it in. You can give it as continuous error. You can give it as binary reward. You can have them watch. You can have them imitate. And we don't really know because, again, coaches over the centuries, right, have developed their favorite methods. But no one's ever done a head-to-head -head trial, Um I'll give you one example. I remember reading a paper on um, how to make someone putt better at golf, right? And there are two ways you can imagine doing it. One is you just have the hole a long way away and you just keep putting and you miss vast amounts of the time and you eventually hit the get more in. Or you have the, ball, the hole extremely close to you. So when you start, it's like an inch away from you. So you get 100% of the balls in. Then you inch it away two inches and you get more. And so slowly you move the hole further and further away. And your success rate throughout that titration procedure is extremely high, right? Or you have a high fail rate by having the ball far away and you eventually improve. 
And when they did that experiment, if I'm remembering correctly, they were equally good. Hmm. The high success rate approach or the fail approach, right? So, but unless you do experiments and really do it, but can you imagine going to Phil Jackson and going, okay, we're going to do a year-long experiment and we're going to see whether this coaching technique is better or worse than that one on that variable. You'd never get done. Do you see what I'm saying? So Absolutely. It's very difficult. Yeah. And, and, I think people, and I think people are so variable. Some people might be kinesthetic and you could say, you know, rotate your hip this way or you rotate your trunk that way. And, and they could perform automatically where more people might be visual and might require sort of an external focus about I need you to face that direction or need you to face face that direction is there a way to to speed up the motor learning process well I mean I mean this is what um, Anders Ericsson talks about in his book which is are there better forms of practice in other words is there a way to uh, optimize uh, your practice because you know I mean uh, the, the writer, Borges, used to play chess every weekend for decades, and he always complained, why am I not getting better? I'm playing so much chess over cumulatively over the years. And the answer to that was is he was never really pushing himself or changing things up or varying his opponents. And so one thing we know is that if you want to really improve is you need to be constantly varying what you're doing and constantly increasing the difficulty level um, and introducing challenges and surprises and unexpected components. Uh, and that's, of course, what the best coaches do with their players. I mean, even with my trainer, I never know what sequence of exercises he's going to have me do in the gym. And I think I benefit from that uncertainty. So uncertainty is very important. Well, uh, it, Another way that people – oh, go ahead. Go no, ahead. as I say, in, in some fields, um, some of us have been working on movement variability. I wrote a paper on it a few years ago. For one, of the, for one of the personal training certifications, but how our body is inherently, how our, all of our movements are inherently variable, right? Because if we, if we did the same exact pattern every single time, you know, baseball pitchers would throw three strikes and you're out. Basketball free throw shooters would, would hit 98, 100% of their shots. So how does variability, what, what role does variability play in the whole motor process? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of work on variability, right? And I think that, you know, there's deliberate variability, right, where you're deliberately trying to be surprising to your opponent, right? So uh, that's deliberate, right? I'm, uh, You know, players do that all the time. They change things up when things aren't working. Uh, that's highly cognitive, right? That's strategy changing. Uh, another form of variability is when you are learning you basically get given options to explore, right? So it's exploratory variability. So for example, one model of motor learning is bird song, you know, finches that can learn a song. And, you know, one of the things they do is that they deliberately inject variability into their output so that they can have a better chance of finding the optimal solution. So there's that kind of injected variability into your output to sort of explore the command space. And then there's just noise, planning noise and execution noise. In other words, it's just you have a noisy system and you you simply cannot model that noise in many cases. Um, so there are many flavors of variability. There's exploratory variability, there's noise variability, and then there's deliberate uh, trying to fool your appoint, op opponent variability. Um, so that's the sort of variability as it's generated 
And then, you know, there's this idea that more variable training, changing things up from the training side uh, improves uh, you. But I would say that what a trainer is trying to do from the outside is very similar to what birds do when they're practicing a song is they inject some variability into it. Um, but it's, it's a huge area of uh, investigation right now. Yeah, and that's what we're trying to do is we want we want to load your tissues, but we don't want to load them the same way every time because that repetition could overload and, and create create stress issues. But when we look at this, and I'm gonna wrap up here in, in a minute, a couple just a couple more questions if you don't mind. But when we look at this, can this type of it, working on movement, so working on learning new movements, if somebody wants to practice, pick up a new skill, say tai chi or squash or tennis, does that help improve their cognitive? How closely, what's how closely related are kind of motor motor learning, neural programming, and overall cognitive function? Yeah, that's a really really good question. So it allows me to sort of say something I was meant to say before, but it's directly relevant. Is it's very important to distinguish between exercise and sport. They're not synonymous, right? So uh, Michael Joyner talks about this uh, a lot. You know, don't you know weightlifting and running even though they have skilled components, have physiological cardiovascular effects that are different from, um, you know, skill-requiring uh, sports like golf, which might not be particularly exhausting from an exercise standpoint, right? You can see a lot of overweight golfers, right? <laughs> you, you, yeah. you, 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 you don't see a lot of overweight marathon runners, right? Um, so exercise and complex motor activities are not the same. Um, your question, um, a, a, a good friend of mine, actually, Andy Conway, who was at Princeton, is now at, um, in California, uh, I can't remember the name of the university, Riverdale, maybe? Riverside? Riverside, um, Riverside yes. Okay. He published a wonderful paper where they compared um, cognitive outcomes when they compared three interventions. One was just doing mind games. The other one was doing exercise. I can't remember what it was. I think it was treadmill. And the other one was doing wrestling, a kind of formalized wrestling, right? So one was a complex motor sport. The other one was exercise. And the other one was mind games. And what they found, very surprisingly, but cool, I think, was that the sport had the most cognitive benefits, right? Non-related to movement at all. So I think that it's very clear that if you want to sort of stave off cognitive decline, in my view, the most the best thing is probably to take up a new motor skill, like a new sport. And and now you you sound you're British, correct? And and I did my yeah, sort of yeah. <laughs> well, but I did my semester abroad many years ago at the LSE in London, and that's where I picked up uh, rugby, and I, I played in the front row of of, uh, of a rugby pack for a number of years. And, and that is the one thing that was very challenging is when, when I picked up a new sport at the age of 22 was there was so much. And it was amazing to see how somebody that grew up in the UK and was playing same age just was so much more efficient at it in terms of me trying to learn it coming from American football and picking up something like rugby, which is a completely different set of movement skills. It, it was amazing to see how tough that was. Right, exactly. In other words, one has to distinguish between how good you're going to get right versus the cognitive benefits of trying to be good uh so you're absolutely right you 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 may derive all the benefits of practicing it without ever becoming one of the greats 
Yeah, no, yeah. it was definitely. I definitely I qualified there. The only reason I ever played at the premiership level is I just happened to have a very good lineout throw as a hooker, <laughs> and I was fit. I always stayed extremely so, fit. So, right. So that combination of some generalization from what you were good at before, plus being fit, that combo was was effective. And with that, and so I want to ask you one of the things I, I you know I read the, the performance cortex by uh, by Sean Brun, and you're mentioned quite a bit in there. And one of the mm. things that I want to ask you about is. I was approached recently by a company, Halo Neuroscience, that claims that they're using, I think, what they call neuropriming. And now the point is, I don't want to trash. I'm not looking to kind of put down their company, but I just want to ask, is it possible their claim is they're using like a low-level current to amplify, to kind of trigger the cortex to amplify motor learning? And in the performance cortex, John, you're a little bit circumspect about that. Is it possible to use that type of technology to, to kind of improve motor learning? Yeah. So in other words, first of all, and I mean this, I don't mean this in an immodest way, but, you know, we, along with my colleagues, were responsible for arguably the most influential multi-day study of skill learning using that TDCS, it's called transcranial direct current stimulation. So we, we did the study right, uh, on a skill learning task, and it did enhance the skill. If you are specific about what component of the skill on a particular task you're targeting that you think is going to be motor cortex dependent. But we've just been having a whole discussion, you and I, about the many facets to learning a sport and the cognitive components and the motor components and the fitness components, right? So in other words, you don't know to whom to assign the credit. I remember when I was talking to a coach for, uh, I think it was the Rockets or the Spurs, I can't remember. And they were saying, look, if you take, um, yeah, it was uh, it was Duncan. They were talking about Tim Duncan, right? So he's with what team is he? With the San Antonio with? Spurs, yeah, the Spurs. The Spurs, right. So the, I was talking to him about Tim Duncan. He said, look, he wasn't faster. He wasn't taller. He didn't have anything that if you looked at low-level characteristics that in any way would have predicted how on his at the global level made him so amazing right reaction times muscle fiber twitches you name it all those low level variables you never in a million years find out why it was so good you could do the same with roger federer right you would see him he's a bit gangly he's not particularly muscular he looks a little bit like a geek and yet you know he's extraordinary but he's no different from many other players that he routinely beats. so in other words there are many many layers of capacity and interacting systems and cognition that make up a skilled athlete. So what makes you think, I mean, um, Steph Curry, if I were to say to him with his remarkable three-point shooting skills that we're going to stimulate your motor cortex, that would imply that we know what makes him good at three-point throws and that we feel quite comfortable that we wouldn't actually make him worse by stimulating her over his motor cortex when he does it, right? Because we don't know what component is giving him that ability, mm. and we would be making an incredibly premature assumption that it's something in his motor cortex that is allowing him to be that good. So I consider it bordering on the unethical to start stimulating him over his motor cortex when he practices, because we don't know what should get the credit, 
And we don't know whether we might be having a deleterious effect because maybe he'll get better at one component at the expense of another. Do you see what I'm saying? Completely. And I think, you know, I had this conversation. I don't know if you know Tim Noakes, a uh, professor out of South Africa, a medical doctor out of mm -hmm. South Africa. He's done a lot of work in the area of ultra-endurance, and he, he studied fatigue. And his, his hypothesis that he works on, John, is that fatigue is an emotion. And so as you're mentioning this and you're talking about, you know, like, like, uh, like, like Steph Curry or, um, you know, the guy in the Spurs who, who played for years and, and Michael Jordan, I, there's a different – or Kobe Bryant. There's a different mental – I mean they have like a different – their ability to compete I think is different. You can't quantify that with whether well, it's I a mean, motor cortex to, or uh, – Right. Given the discussion we just had. Do you think that this company would consider stimulating them over the motor cortex if they were chess players or mathematicians or translators or novelists or conductors, right? In other words, the reason why I find it annoying is given this discussion where I've questioned the distinction between athletes and intellectuals, the fact that you think that you can stimulate over the head of athletes, but you wouldn't do it over the head of chess players means that that bias has come right back at the level of the technology. Do you see what I'm saying? Completely. No, I think that's a very, that's a very useful insight because it, it's one thing. And, and you can't also put in – because how many times did Jordan practice? You know, those guys – and we look at like Kobe. Kobe would stay late after a game and practice. Steph Curry stays and, and shoots. You know, so you can't. I mean, I would sit there and, and agree with you 100% and say you can't just point to one single variable in their entire compendium of activity history and say this is where they got to that level. Exactly. And if you were to say that you've done experiments which were like the ones we did where you actually identify a particular variable and you say that's the variable I'm going to go after by doing TDCS over M1 – Okay, you'd have to prove to me that the going after that variable and that variable alone is going to have an overall benefit. You have to prove to me that it's not going to have a detriment to the other variables that you haven't targeted. You, you, right? You, I, if you want to do that research program and you want to go after it systematically the way you just said it and the way I've just said it, fine. And people are willing to volunteer for it and they're not going to be impaired in any way by it. But don't prematurely start selling it and claiming it. Do you see? That's what I don't like. Oh, obviously, you know, people are taking a they're taking a, a a sliver, and I see this all the time in fitness. I mean, don't don't think that that you're not. I mean, look at Doctor Tabata, Izumi Tabata, out of Japan. He did a study 22 years ago on speed skaters. You know, six six speed skaters, and found that doing a eight cycles of 20 seconds of high intensity exercise improved their VO2. And now for the last 15 years, people have been using his name to make money, you know, selling this Tabata protocol, you know, the protocol right. that he researched. So they took one component of research and said, well, this works and they applied it to everything. And and that's something that we see quite a bit is, is that people take just, you know, better research. And well, because 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 we want, we, you know, we don't like slow, deep things. We like fast, shallow things in general. <laughs> right. People. It's true. Right. People like tweets. They like. Anything that's quick, fragmentary, and superficial, you know, no one reads long books anymore. No one wants to have to practice for 10 years. So as long as soon as some sort of pharmacological or technological quick fix seems to loom over the horizon, people glom onto it, right, with excessive optimism of an almost religious fashion. And, and, and I understand that, right? It's true in medicine. It's true in everything. We want quick fixes. But we have a responsibility as scientists and as adults 
to say not so fast and to be cautious and to be skeptical and to be careful. And of course, we live in a culture that doesn't want any of that. It wants to have a quick fix and it wants to make a big profit. And as soon as you have that toxic combination, it's almost impossible to stop. Well, again, you just summed up the entire, I think you summed up American culture and, and you summed up the fitness industry <laughs> and it's not an industry, you know, you're not, of the, you, know, you look at neuroscience, which is, which is a tangential field, but that's the entire problem is people look for quick fixes and, and they see somebody claiming one thing and like this one thing may work, you know, drinking, you know, pickle juice or, or doing some, you know, butter, no, butter I mean, and coffee uh, is, you know, I'm gonna put butter in my coffee now. That's going to change my life. That, to I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to drink gallons of pomegranate juice you know it's you know it's hilarious right but it's not hilarious because it's serious because we don't know whether it might not have bad consequences i mean you know that's why i gave the steph curry i i genuinely think that it would be wrong to take someone of that remarkable multifaceted talent and then to affix something this to their head without having any idea what the consequences might be no, I think you're. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, I think you'd, you'd be better off teaching Steph how to meditate for five to ten minutes than to to do transcranial, you know, transcranial stimulation, or, 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 or read a good novel. <laughs> yeah, or yeah. I mean, that that really would be. I, I, I would. I'd agree a hundred percent. And I think I think we do look for those quick fixes. Well, I really appreciate your time, and I appreciate your insight into this because you have to understand a lot of us in the field of fitness, we are looking at neurophysiology and how do we teach movement and how do we get people to move better it's not just yes you have those trainers that are fixed fixated only on looking better but especially as we age you know our goal is to help clients move better now if you don't mind me asking who do you work with in boston what or not your boston your baltimore you're you're in baltimore um what what gym or what trainer do you work with in baltimore well, I have. Um, oh, well, I'm very happy to talk about my trainer because I love him. His name is uh, Wayne McFadden, and I met him when I first moved from New York to Baltimore at the Mac Gym, the Maryland Athletic Club. And uh, he has been training me for the last seven years. In fact, I had a very bad rotator cuff injury uh, that required surgery, and he sort of therapized me through that. Um, and he has been remarkable. And in fact, he's trained me. You know, we do everything from weights to general fitness. Um, and, and then I have a former professional squash player. He's English actually called Gus Cook, who, uh, teaches me squash, but I will say, and this is interesting that I get to play him at squash three times a week just for my fitness training. And he's better than me. So he nearly always wins, but then other people ask me to play with them and I don't really want to. And then they think, well, aren't you being trained by someone so that you can become competitive. And I try to explain that, no, I'm, I'm doing this complex sport of squash for fitness and cognitive benefits. I'm not actually looking to go on to beat anybody else. So that's my uh, approach to have a squash coach, Gus Cook, and then this wonderful trainer who I highly recommend to anyone listening who's around <laughs> Baltimore, uh, Wayne McFadden, a former boxer and trainer who's helped me out tremendously. And I do, a final point I'll say is if you do go to the gym, or do a sport, it really does help to have someone who knows what they're doing coach you. I, I I would never be able to learn how to exercise in the gym without a trainer. It would have been completely hopeless. Well, thank you. No, that validates it. And then how important, you know, because looking at, at, at different and learning a skill, how important is it to push yourself to do, to read, to, to play Gus and to, because I think that's a, that's very insightful because when I played rugby, I didn't mind losing as long as we played a good match and we played a better team. I would rather play a match, John, and lose than play a match and win by 50 points. 
because yeah, you're going to get I, better in losing. Oh, absolutely. In other words, I, I'm sure I get far more out of it than he does. Um, and I don't mind losing at all. In fact, it's kind of interesting. You know, as you get more successful in other domains of your life, it's kind of fun to be in an area where you're the student and where you are not the best and where others have to tell you what to do. I, I kind of like that loss of power. And I like the fact that with my trainers, I can just say, look, you know better than I. I'm not as good. I never will be. Nevertheless, I'm improving. And you tell me. And I think it's really healthy, actually, to succumb to the expertise of others. I think that's I think that's an awesome insight. And with John, I really appreciate your time, and I, I really appreciate your work. And for do you have any? Because I want to I want to add you to, to I'm gonna kind of feature this to help promote the performance co- cortex. I think that's a, a great insight into what you do. And you mentioned one or two other books. Do you have any work that you've done yourself that's for the general consumer audience that they might be able to learn a little bit more about what it is that you do in the field that you study? Oh. Um, well, we did write that one article in the New York Times called Is the Dumb Drop Really a Nerd? where we talk about this, which I think is kind of fun. Um, and then there was that article that you probably saw that we wrote on the mind of the elite athlete in Nature Neuroscience Reviews in 2009, where we actually, it's a little technical, but we talk about athletes and the brain and things like that. Um, but otherwise, not really. I'm working on a book now about neuroscience, uh, which will be a trade book. Hopefully, it will come out sometime late next year. But that's more about neuroscience in general and my concerns with it rather than this particular topic. But I think if people scroll through my Blam website, there are certain review articles that are more accessible than others. But I must confess, I haven't written that much lay stuff. That's why Zach did such an amazing job, I think, with the performance cortex. Well, I really it was such a it was such a good read and, and and it was such a fascinating interview and such a fascinating field and and I really appreciate your time for sharing your insights and uh, yeah, I appreciate I, your I, thoughts. Worried, I, I, I worried a little bit that you made me seem like a little bit of a brat in that book, but I guess it was okay. No, no, <laughs> not at all. You you take I mean what I think comes across is you take you take your field seriously and but to to your point. Anybody who researches it, the more you study, the, the less you know, it seems. You know, I, I speak with, you know, exercise scientists all the time. And the more they delve into a topic, like, say, muscle phys- physiology, they realize the less they really know. So it's fascinating to have that, that conversation just from a different point of view. Well, thank you very much. I had a lot of fun. Uh, you asked great questions. And I hope it was informative enough to make it worth your while. Oh, absolutely, sir. I appreciate your time on this Friday afternoon. Thank you very much. And I'll be in touch with, uh, with your assistant once it's, it's up and, and you can uh, listen to the outcome of what we put together. Okay. Thank you very much. Cheers. Have Take a lovely care. weekend. You Bye. Same. Bye. As I said in the beginning, Dr. Krakauer is easily probably one of the top five smartest people I've interviewed on All About Fitness. And, and I really, I try to take pride in interviewing people who understand the body in a much different depth, range of motion, anything than many of us do in the fitness industry. That's why I like talking to researchers. That's why I like talking to people who go into the weeds studying the body. I mean, that's been my career. My career has been reading the research and then helping understand, helping other personal trainers understand how to apply that research. I haven't conducted the research. I'm not a geek working in the lab. I'm the geek that reads the research. So the lab people do the research. I'm the geek that reads it and go, oh, okay, this is what it means for fitness. This is how we use it with this piece of equipment. This is 
why we should be training this way, or this is maybe why we should not be doing that type of activity or that type of exercise. That's what I've done in my career. I've read the research, I've understood it. So anytime I get a chance, and this is the big area, the big difference, and what I tell people is if you wanna, if you wanna set yourself apart as a personal trainer, understand movement, understand the endocrine system, and understand motivation. And what I mean by that is if you understand movement, then you understand how to program workout programs for how the body moves. You can design the workout programs for how the body is supposed to move. That's why you want to understand movement. If you understand the endocrine system, then you understand that anything we do, any stress stimulus, produces a response in hormones. And what we can do with exercise, we can manipulate the hormone response. And then with behavior change and motivation, that's how we engage, that's how we engage our clients and keep our clients coming back. Those are the three areas, especially your study, that I would highly recommend to anybody who wants to be a phenomenal personal trainer. If you want to exceed and be one of the best personal trainers, understand those areas. Movement, hormones, and motivation behavior. And you will rock the world. Forget 30-second videos on Instagram. Forget that, you know, right? That, that, that looks cool and looks flashy, but really, if you, want to, if you want to change people's lives, understand movement, understand motivation, and understand how exercise influences the body from the hormones out. Hey, with that, you can always follow me, All About Fitness Podcast on Instagram. That's All About Fitness Podcast on Instagram. If you want to get uh, more information about how your body works, pick up a copy of Smarter Workouts, The Science of Exercise Made Simple. That's down below in the notes. And if you want to learn how exercise slows down the aging process, good grief, it does. Check down below. You can pick up my book, Ageless Intensity, the high-intensity workouts that slow the aging process. As always, thanks for stopping by, and I do look forward to having you join me for future episodes of All About Fitness.